Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast, a football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia. Hello everyone, welcome back, welcome back after a break to the Football Collective Podcast. Today I have with me Laurie Shaw who is a sport analyst and is well-known by the name of 85 Point on Twitter. He does a lot of stuff over Python, and I don't know what he does exactly, but what I understand from that is like he crunches data and figures out exactly what is happening in the sporting world. So welcome, Laurie. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for inviting me on. From what I have searched you about you, and you have told me, obviously, you were an astrophysicist from Yale, and... Now you are doing stuff around football and I guess you've studied data science and sport analytics from Harvard, if I'm not wrong. That's right. Well, I certainly started off my career in, in astrophysics. Um, you know, when I was young, like I was pretty sure that I wanted to become a, a physicist. Um, so I was, I, I did an undergraduate degree in physics, went on to do a PhD uh, and then postdoctoral positions um, at McGill in Montreal and, um, and, and at Yale. Um, I mean, I guess I've had kind of an unusual career in that it's taken me through several different industries, but I think that the common theme throughout it all is data and data science. So trying to extract information from large data sets in a variety of different ways and finding ways to present it and trying to understand how it can help people make decisions. Um, so, I mean, I guess to give you a little bit of background, after uh, when I was at Yale, I began to think about, you know, what it is I wanted to do in my career. And I, I realized that I didn't want to remain in academia for my whole career. I, I wanted to get some experience working in different industries. Um, and I also realized that, you know, one of the things that I, I really loved doing was this whole process of analyzing data and extracting information and communicating it as well. And then, of course, there are you know, lots of different industries where you can do that kind of thing. Um, so the first thing I did is went to work in finance for a, a quantitative um, investment fund. And after a, couple of reali- after a couple of years, I realized that I didn't, wasn't that interested in finance. Um, and so I moved on to work uh, in policy at the, uh, at the Treasury in London. And a few, about three years ago, um, my wife uh, and I were offered positions at, at, um, at Harvard. Um, she's a professor in physics. And it gave me that, the position that I was offered gave me the opportunity to, to, to spend some time um, doing research in, you know, in whatever field that I felt found, found interesting, but so long as it was relevant to data science. And you know, for several years up to that point, I, I had become very interested in sports analytics and was kind of following what people were doing um, in the community. And so for the last two or three years, I've been helping uh, Mark Glickman, who's a faculty member in the statistics department, build up the, the sports analytics lab in the, uh, the statistics department at Harvard, where we look at data from all different sports. We have different research projects, you know, students from many different departments, um, broadly in you know pretty much any area of sports analytics. So, and I guess you primarily, from your Twitter account, it is quite evident that you love football and you do a lot of stuff around football. So coming down to football, I will talk about expected goals, which is 
now quite the hotshot thing over in the UK. And I guess it is the same across the world. People are speaking about whether a player is overperforming expected goals or something. So for our viewers, if you can explain like what is expected goals and how it is actually calculated in a very brief way so that people who don't have knowledge about data science can understand that. Sure. So, you know, I think there's obviously expected goals has kind of gone from being something that people have discussed in blogs and in a fairly small community to a concept that you see on mainstream media now. Um, I think there's still a degree, a bit of a confusion as to you know what people are talking about. And, and to be perfectly honest, the name doesn't help. Um, I can see, you know, expected goals is called, it's called expected goals because um, it's a, uh, you know, something founded in, in statistics. But in reality, it's really just a measure of the quality of a chance. Um, so, you know, for a long time, we've been looking at, um, you know, the number of shots that either team have had. But, you know, everyone knows that not every shot is equal. Um, a shot from two yards out is not the same as a shot from 30 yards out. And so what expected goals really just tries to do is, is, is measure the quality of an opportunity. Um, and that's defined as being you know, the probability that this shot would result in a goal. Um, you know, looking back over the history of you know, shots over the last five, 10 years or whatever, how frequently was it that a shot from that location resulted in a goal? Um, so you end up with a number between zero and one. A one is that it's a certain goal. And, you know, if it's very close to zero, then it's um, very unlikely to result in a goal. And, and so when people say expected goals, particularly for a given opportunity, that's just what they mean. It's like, how good was the opportunity? So a penalty is typically assigned an expected goal of 0.75 because of roughly three quarters of penalties are scored. And, and then what people do is just add up that chance quality measure for all the shots in a game and they would and then say that's the expected number of goals a number of goals a team might have been expected to score given the quality of their chances so if it adds up to two and a half that means that if you you know the chance quality from all the shots they had sums up to that number so here's i will interrupt you here's another question of mine so is the expected goals same across all the leagues or does it vary from league to league, country to country, player to player? That's a good question. I mean, and the reality is it depends how it's measured. Um, because the way that people are getting that chance quality or expected goal measure is go back in all the data that they have and find all the shots that, you know, are similar to the one that you're looking at. So from perhaps they were all the shots that were taken at the same location of the field, um, perhaps all those shots that were taken with the right foot, um, you know, and then there's other information people like to put in was, you know, was it a counter-attacking opportunity? Was it a direct free kick? You know, some other kind of contextual information. Uh, and then once you've selected all the shots that have been taken in your data set that match the one you're looking at, you look at the proportion of them that have resulted in the goal. And that's not exactly what people do. And people use various models to try to um, um, understand the importance of, you know, various factors like distance to goal, or angle to goal, um, you know, whether it's a counterattack or a crop comes from a cross, things like that. Um, but it's fundamentally based on the data that you use to, um, to calibrate those models. 
um, the historical data that you're using. And if that data is based in a single league, then you know you could argue that that it's, it's really just relevant to that to that to that league. And people have found differences when they've compared expected goals models from one league to another. Um, but at the end of the day, there are lots of different models out there. Some of them try to account for differences in leagues. Um, some of them are based on data solely from one league. So you know, the answer is it really varies and depends on you know, what data you're using. Uh, thank you for clarifying the doubt. That, that was one of the major questions I always had. And to be honest, perfectly honest, one of the major things when I saw, I recently developed an interest in data analytics specifically on the expected goals side of things. Uh, one of the major flaws which I found in expected goals is that it doesn't take in account the quality of the shortstop or the goalkeeper or the opposition defense into it as well. And it doesn't combine like the expected goals with the expected shots saved uh, to give a more holistic view of, you can say, what might be the actual probability of the shot going in. But I guess there will be obviously differences when you're trying to apply a generalized model over all the leagues. That's right. I mean, it's all about context. Like the original, you know, the simplest expected goals model just takes the position, the location on the field that the shot was taken. And, you know, that's the only thing that tells you, you know, the likelihood of the shot resulting in a goal, basically distance from goal and angle from goal. And then people realize, that, of course, you know, headers are very different to, to shots with the feet. And so added additional information that, that tried to model, you know, whether the shot was, it was a header or a right-footed shot or a left-footed shot. Um, and then added more contextual information to say, well, you know, a, a shot from a through ball is very different to a shot against a mass defense. Um, and building on like that, and, and people now begin to think about concepts like, you know, how good was the shot taker? Like what's the quality of the striker taking the shot? Um, you know, how good is the goalkeeper that that player faces? Um, and I'd say that the, the advent, you know, it, often these models are limited purely by the information that's in your data. Um, but with the advent of, of, of new data sets, like tracking data that tells you the positions of all the players in any given instant, you can start to account for things like, you know, pressure on the shot taker or the number of intervening defenders and, and try and add those to the, um, to the model. But, you know, context is, is, of course, very important. And, you know, people, as data improves, and as people improve their understanding, they try to find ways of adding all this additional context into expected goals models. The next question, which I will come to is like, obviously, the UEFA and the other global bodies of football, they have said that the competitive balance is decreasing, which is you can term as the gap between the top and the bottom is increasing. But if we see some of the top teams, the like say Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, Real Madrid, FC Barcelona, the gap between them is growing or is lessening very closer and closer. And all these clubs have like say implemented data science in some way or the other. So obviously people know about like Moneyball in which Oakland Athletics managed to punch well above their weight but how what do you think is the way forward for data science and how is it going to become more important as we move forward in the world of football i mean i guess the, the thing the first thing to say is that it's it's still 
relatively young in football, you know, particularly when you compare it to sport like baseball, um, you know, where data's been playing an important role now for 20 years now. I think that it's, you know, it's, 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 of course, it's always very difficult to isolate exactly the impact that analysts and data scientists are having at clubs on top of the, you know, everything else that's going on. People like to point at Liverpool and Barcelona, you know, Liverpool being very successful, um, you know, have a, an excellent data science team. Um, but of course they have an excellent manager and excellent players as well. And you can never identify the role of, you know, any individual at a club um, um, over on top of, you know, everything else that's going on at that club. Um, I think that it's, at the end of the day, it seems that to be successful, not just in football, but in any sport, it's not just about bringing in lots of data, buying lots of data sets and bringing in, you know, really high quality analysts to analyze that data, but also to have the system in place so that that information that's coming from the data can feed into the decisions that are being made at the club. Um, and I think that, you know, there are certainly are cases of, of people joining clubs as, a, as data scientists, but finding it very frustrating because there was no real governance or system in place for them to, you know, report their findings to someone else who was going to incorporate it into making a decision. Um, and so, you know, I think that at, probably most clubs have a long way to go in terms of understanding how they might want to incorporate analytics into their into their process for whether it's for buying a player or preparing for matches um of course it's very hard to know what's going on inside of many clubs but it's it's it seems like that would be a key part of um building a successful analytics team and the other question which i want to ask is like obviously again i will link it to moneyball after oakland athletics success in the baseball season the other teams came and recruited their data science guy. And obviously the big teams started gaining success once they figured out that, well, the smaller teams are doing it. So in the growing world where like financial inequality among football teams are growing ever, how do you think that data science can help a small team punch well above its weight? Let's just say a championship team of the quality of say Sheffield Wednesday help at least compete with the Premier League side. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to that, the example from the Oakland A's, it's, you know, a major league baseball team that didn't have, you know, much in the way financial resources and looked for other ways of finding value in the transfer market. And, you know, in, in many ways, I'd say that it should be more effective at lower levels the reality is that a team like Barcelona, you know, they're going to recruit, you know, from the best 20 or 30 players in the world. Um, and, you know, if they have the money to spend, then, you know, they can, it's fairly easy to identify who those players might be. And yes, they may pay a lot for them, but they're going to get high quality players. I think in principle, the pool of players that, you know, smaller teams can look at, in, you know, in principle is much larger. They're not just looking at the very end of the elite end. Um, there should be a larger number of players that, you know, potentially could work well at their club. Um, 
And, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for finding, you know, not only high quality players that are under the radar, but, you know, gaining a lot of value for money as well. So it's, it's, um, of course, these, these teams have less money to actually set up the data infrastructure, but, you know, in principle, they should, um, they should, you know, be worth their weight in terms of investment, um, just in terms of improving the performance of teams in the transfer market. Again, it's, it's a long-term game though. It's, it's very hard to, um, you can't guarantee success and, you know, you expect there to be sort of small incremental improvements that build up over a long time rather than, you know, a new analytics team being built and revolutionizing the team in a couple of seasons. That's just not going to happen. Um, but hopefully, you know, it improves the ability to identify high quality players. It allows them to get those players at a lower price. And over a period of time, you begin to see the benefits of it. So probably the last question of this podcast is, as time is progressing, I'm seeing more people or you can see more university going students in their first years taking interest in data analytics, wanting to become data analysts of a football club. And probably they don't have an idea like where to start because getting access to large data sets is incredibly hard unless you have subscriptions of some of the premium platforms such as Opta or Scout or whatever other alternatives exist in this world. So as an advice from a data scientist, what advice will you give to this young people who want to get into data science regarding the type of skills they need to develop? Yeah, I mean, that's a question that people ask a lot. Um, I mean, I'd say, firstly, on the, you know, you referred to the difficulty of getting hold of data. I mean, now, is, there's never been a better time than now for, for gaining access to free data sets. Statsbomb, you know, releasing large amounts of, um, of event data for free for people to look at, uh, to familiarize themselves and to do, you know, do their own analyses with. Um, as part of the... The, the group Friends of Tracking, um, which is a group that I'm involved in that, that, that tries to um, help people familiarize themselves with some of the tools that people are using in, in football analytics, and provide them with the, um, with the code, but also point them to where they can find data. And, and through that project, um, we've been able to make a, a small amount of, of tracking data publicly available as well. And there are other data providers, um, Scout as well, um, also have, have released data for the community. So there is, there's more than enough data really to, to get going with, with simple research projects. You may not have enough to, uh, to train in some kind of deep learning um, uh, algorithm for, you know, for doing something very, very, that requires a huge amount of data, but there's, there's certainly plenty out there for, for doing interesting small bits of analysis. Um, and so my main piece of advice was just people to get stuck into the data, um, learn how to, to program. I mean, that's, that's, that's crucial, you know, particularly in a language that um, is very well suited for data science. So, you know, the two pop most popular being Python and R. Um, but also, you know, ana analysis is only part of the, um, is only part one of the toolkits that you need and being able to, to describe in very clear way, you know, what you've done, what your analysis shows, 
um, I think it's always worth spending a lot of time on the communication side and you know producing very clear informative charts and figures writing up the work that you've done very well um, the I would say that it's, it's an incredibly um, friendly and welcoming community uh, football analysts and it's partly because you know a lot of it has its roots in in people who started out writing blogs um, and gradually transitioned to you know professional roles you know either at data providers or at clubs or in in an industry associated with football um, and and it retains that connection with the blogging community so I, I think that you know it's 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 definitely worth starting to write up, publicize the work that you've done, share it in the community. And, and you know, you'll find that people listen and people take notice. Um, so, I, you know, that the best advice really is just to kind of get stuck into data, learn how to code um, and learn how to present your results very clearly. And some, someone somewhere will, will listen and you'll be able to make connections and, and go from there. Yeah, another thing, as you have said, like presenting data, which I guess is an incredible and important part because sometimes like numbers can be very misleading if you don't have the qualitative side of things because uh, even if the total number of passes, say a player has 100 passes in a game and 90 of them are bad passes and doesn't really add value to the team because none of them is pressing the player or putting him in high pressure and he's just racking up the number of passes. So I guess, yeah, uh, qualitative analysis of the data is incredibly important as well and probably if you can provide some food for thought on that i mean that's it's right and it's i see a lot of like whether it's students or or people writing blogs or even you know research papers where the analysis what they've done is phenomenally good very clever um very original but it's just written up in such a way that it's very hard to access. Um, and at the end of the day, it's the impact that your work will have is, you know, going to be de de determined by the quality of the work, but also determined by how well you describe and communicate it. And no matter how good the work is, if it's communicated badly, it's going to have much less of an impact than it could have. And, you know, there's always, of course, there's a, a temptation to, to write up a, do a nice piece of analysis, you finish the code, um, you've got some results, and to get it out there quickly. But what I've always found is that the most time-consuming bit is, you know, writing it up, um, the uh, the communication side. Um, and so sometimes the analysis is actually kind of easy. You get the data, you put it in the format that you want, you um, you extract the information that you want. Uh, and the difficult bit is trying to explain, you know, why what you've done is interesting and what it actually tells you. Um, someone once told me that, you know, it's always good to kind of to write down like the, the sort of three to five take home points that your analysis or the piece of work that you've done is said so that people go away and just remember a couple of things, you know, be very sure what it is that you want them to remember. And I think that's a good, um, a good discipline to have. Thank you for thank you for speaking to us, Laurie. It was nice speaking to you, and I hope that you and your family are staying safe and doing well in this lockdown. And I wish you best of luck. And hopefully, we will see you in some of the top clubs very soon, if you wish. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me on, and uh, you know, take care as well. And um, you know, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to speak to you. Thank you. Have a nice day.
You too.